It's from John 13. When he, and that's, that's Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, for I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Would you please be seated? I want to open a Bible to John 13 on page 900. We'll be kind of going back and forth and uh, you can follow along. We'll look at it several times. This summer, we're looking at chapters 13 through 17 of the Gospel of John. Uh, Famous Bible scholar John Stott called this the heart of the Bible, these chapters. There are a lot of famous sayings of Jesus in these chapters. And we just read one where Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, during the first ten years after I became a Christian, a follower of Jesus, there was a lot of Christians bashing Christians about how Christians weren't very loving. And, um, you know, we would kind of, we young Christians, we'd kind of go to churches and observe and feel like, you know, they weren't very loving, so we, we judge them as judgmental. Pastor Luke, you see I did that? That's okay. Um, and then we sit around campfires and we hugged and we sang songs like, and they'll know we are Christians by our love, which is a great song, um, because we felt we were so much more loving than, you know, mostly older Christians. And I'm sure that in our youthful enthusiasm and critical hearts, we were not entirely fair to the people we were observing. But it's also true that there was some truth to it, that there were some things going on that just weren't that loving in churches. Now, fast forward to today. Every week I I go out by the door after we finish in worship and I greet people. And then I go over and I get some coffee and I kind of look around like many of you do. I see if somebody's nobody's talking to them. I try and talk to, to them. And then often I'll just kind of take a step back and look at you guys. And see what's going on. And do you know what I see? I see people loving each other. I see people letting other people know that they're important to them. I see people listening to people who really need to be listened to. And I, honestly, I commend you. Uh, you bring joy to the patio. You make people feel welcome and loved. Many visitors, literally many, have commented to me about how you're welcoming and joyful and loving. Now, I've, I'm a pastor. I've visited at least 100 churches. And I honestly can say to you that of all the churches I have visited, this is the one that I have just perceived it being the most loving and joyful and welcoming. So you're to be commended. Now, about 70% of you are in small groups. And usually your small group meets about once a week and you study the Bible and you share each other's concerns and your challenges and you um, pray for each other. And for many, meeting in their small group is kind of their favorite thing they get to do each week. And many of you have kind of come up to me and whispered, 
our group's the best group. Um, and for many of you, not all, but many, your small group is where you really feel known and accepted and encouraged, where you pe- people really care, where you feel... And I think I better move the other mic. We're just having... Okay. Um, And even though outsiders might rarely be able to observe what happens in your small group, they still see then how you treat each other on the patio. They, They may see that when you have something going on that's difficult in your life, a family crisis or going to the hospital or something that your small group brings you meals or they come and visit and and they see these kinds of things that show that you really love each other. And then in addition, some of you are especially impressive because you just seem to always know when somebody's in need and either emotionally or for prayer or for physical needs. And you're just really good at loving people that have something going on. And I just really consider it to be a privilege to be a pastor. And you guys actually, I learn a lot from you about loving people better. And I honestly have never seen a church where Jesus' statement is as true as it is of you. By this all people will know that you are my, my disciples if you have love for one another. So I honestly commend you. Now this summer... I'm asking all of us to pray and ask God to kind of nudge us in the direction of somebody we know around here that isn't a follower of Jesus yet, and just to love them in in much the same ways you're already loving each other. And maybe you have them over for a meal, or you just figure out some way to serve them, or listen to them, or encourage them, but invest some of your time in just loving them. Verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, why is this a new commandment? What's, what's the greatest commandment? You guys remember what the greatest commandment is? What Jesus says is the greatest commandment. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And then what did he say is the second greatest commandment? Love your neighbors yourself. Well, why is this different than love your neighbors yourself? Love each other like I love you, Jesus said. Isn't it the same thing? No, it's not. See, by love your neighbors yourself, people would fit that, they would fit what that required of them into kind of their cultural expectations and their societal expectations, and they and they kept it reasonable. For, for example, remember last week when Jesus washed the disciples' feet? Who was supposed to wash the disciples' feet? The, the lowest servant in, in the household, but there wasn't one, so Jesus did, did that. Now, even somebody who said, I'm supposed to love my neighbors myself, I'm going to truly love people, they would never have thought of, for example, trading places with the lowest servant of the house. They'd just be nice to the lowest servant. Have you seen the classic movie, 1982, Gandhi? Won eight Academy Awards. Ben Kingsley won Best Actor and Best Picture. And at one point, Gandhi is trying to institute some of Jesus' principles with his followers. And he wants everybody to treat everybody else as if they're just as valuable as they are. Now, you understand in India, the caste system is very contrary to that. And so he's trying to make a big change. And the person that he runs into huge trouble with is his wife. He says, I'm not going to scrub toilets. That's what untouchables do. Because in the whole concept of 
loving each other, loving our neighbor as we would love ourselves, for most people and many religions, that didn't go beyond what the cultural expectations were and what was reasonable. See, Jesus told his followers not just to love their neighbors, but to love who? Their enemies. And to do unreasonable things like if their enemy forced them to walk one mile, to walk two miles. If their enemy took their coat to give them their cloak as well, completely unreasonable and beyond what anybody was thinking when it said, love your neighbor as yourself. And Apostle Paul picks up in this scene in Romans 12 when he says, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, this is part of what it means to love like Jesus loves. Now, today is Father's Day. Most fathers are tremendous examples of loving their children well. They go to work day after day, year after year, providing, and sometimes they don't even like their jobs. They read stories to their kids. They pray with their kids. They protect them and help them feel safe. They give them boundaries and discipline. They play with them and hug them and encourage them and tell them they love them. And today, we're especially grateful for fathers. Some of us had better fathers, some of us worse, but we're especially grateful for our fathers. But you realize that parents of every worldview, whether it's Buddhist or Hindu or Muslim or atheist, pretty much all are good examples of loving their kids and will sacrifice for their kids. It's not distinctively Christian. Jesus tells us to do something that initially sounds unreasonable, to love our enemies. And when Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, what do you think came to the disciples' mind? If you were a disciple, what would have come to your mind? Would you have thought about, you know, you've been together three years, and all those times when you walked together on a dusty path, and Jesus listened to you or talked with you? Would you have thought about maybe sometime in the three years you got sick, and you know, he actually came with a washcloth and took care of you, or maybe prayed and healed you? Would you have thought about, just sometime when you were sitting there with Jesus and he, he looked into your eyes and you just felt really loved. What would it have been like to be loved by Jesus as the disciples were? What was it like for them? The first chapter of Hebrews says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The beginning of the Gospel of John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and peace. What would it have been like to walk with Jesus for three years and to see how much he loved them? See, Jesus truly knew them. He knew their hearts. He knew their flaws, and yet he loved them unconditionally. Now, the Apostle Paul captures a lot of what it means to love unconditionally in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful. It's not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It's not, it does not rejoice at wrong, but rejoices in the right. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. That's how Jesus loved his disciples. Even though he knew the worst about them. What I want you to hear loud and clear today is that that's how God loves you. And I would be willing to bet that most of you, if you were honest and you really dug deep, the 
there's something going on inside of you for you that makes you feel like you're, you're actually kind of unlovable. Jesus knows everything going on in your heart. Whatever it is you're struggling with, he, and he says he loves you unconditionally, that you are immensely valuable to him, even if you're struggling loving yourself. And he gives us a new commandment to love others like he loves us, unconditionally, sacrificially, humbly serving them. But here's the catch. The greatest aspect of what it means to love like Jesus, this is the last night before he dies, and he hasn't shown them yet what it is. He says the greatest aspect he's going to do the next day when he dies for them on the cross. He'll say in John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. So when Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, he's talking about going so far as dying for someone. The best information we have is that all of the apostles, except for John, ended up dying for people. That they could spread the gospel. We don't do that. This is not about earning salvation. We love people in this way because that's the way Jesus loved us. We, we love people in this way because we love Jesus and want to be like him. We love people in this way also because we know it's one of the best ways for people to become attracted to Jesus is when they feel God's love through us. Now, some of you were here last week and we titled the, the sermon True Greatness and looked at what Jesus said about greatness. And today we're talking about true glory, and there's there's a distinction that I'm, I'm trying to make. Um, true greatness was completely different than what people had considered for thousands of years until Jesus. And he, several times, we mentioned last week, said things like this to the disciples. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And even though he talked to the disciples about that before, what happened on the last night? What were the disciples arguing about? Who was the greatest? And so Jesus, what did he do? He gave them a tremendous example of greatness by becoming the lowest servant and washing their feet and serving them. Because love loves to serve. God is actually the servant God because he's love. And for millennia, humans thought that true greatness was something completely different. I grew up serving other people as little as possible, very selfish. I, one of my chores, my mom would say, you got to go sweep your room. I would literally, so that I could do it faster, I would sweep the dirt under the rug. And I got caught. I'd give her a hard time every time she wanted me to take out the trash. Then I became a follower of Jesus, and they told me, followers of Jesus serve people. So I went away to a Young Life camp and served as a volunteer for a month up in British Columbia, and they had us working 12 to 16 hours a day, much of it just hauling gravel in a wheelbarrow. It felt good not to be just serving myself. And one of the wonderful things that we mentioned last week about true greatness is that when you
you serve people, that's what Jesus says is his true greatness. And when you serve people, and many of you have discovered this, is that it feels good. It reinforces itself because you say, you know, I went and I helped out over there. That felt good. And so it helps us to develop the habit of serving. And many of you have done that. And, and just a quick aside, um, we are in a kind of a culture shift that has happened in this country. And when 30 years ago, um, when someone volunteered to teach in Sunday school, they kind of did it from September to June. Or if they were going to sing in the choir, they did it from September to June. Now people travel so much and everything that we've got a whole different paradigm. And we need everybody to kind of volunteer once a month so that we can staff and really take good care of the kids that are in Sunday school and have the, the band work well and all these things. So I would encourage you to take a, a baby step and do serve somewhere once a month. So serving, true greatness reinforces itself because you feel good. You feel fulfilled when you serve. I don't think that's the case with what I'm going to describe today as true glory. What Jesus is saying here. When he, and that's Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. What's this picture of? Warriors. Won the NBA championship Monday night. Kevin Durant, MVP. Winning the NBA championship is a huge accomplishment. And all of us can appreciate just these amazing, talented individuals who worked extremely hard to develop their individual and team skill. This is what we call athletic glory, Okay. And athletic glory makes the winners feel good, motivates them to keep working hard so they can win more trophies. And that's kind of the way competition and high-level achievement function inside of us, whether it's sports or our career or academics or even video games. And so we have to be careful that we can enjoy the competition and yet not say, if I win, I'm better than somebody. If I lose, I'm worse than somebody. We have to realize that what gives us our value very appropriate for Father's Day is that our Father loves us. Our Father in Heaven loves us and that makes us incredibly valuable. Each and every one of us can live that image and possibly more than One of the things about being a father, I became a father 37 and a half years ago, and one of the things that I'm not sure if I expected or not was the minute our daughter was born, we were committed. We loved her. We, we would sacrifice for her, might have even died for her. And you see, what God has done is he has put in us his image, which you might say resonates with his image in other people. And we just intrinsically know that that baby is worth loving, even if they won't win the NBA championship. Probably won't. doesn't matter. That's not what makes us valuable. The athletic ability will fade. Beauty will fade. Even your brain will eventually disappoint you if you live long enough. But the love of God never ends. And you're more loved than you know. And if you believe what God has told us about Jesus, that he's his son, that he died for us, that he rose again, that if you'll turn your life over to him, you will experience God's love and enjoy God forever. So it can be fun to compete. 
to win, but that is not what makes you worthwhile. You are extremely important and valuable because God loves you and values you. Now, for thousands of years in the ancient world, people flaunted their achievements and their status and their wealth. They looked down on the lower classes. They looked down on slavery, on slaves, and they sought this kind of worldly glory that comes from conquest, from achievement, from status, from wealth. They believed that was what gave them glory. And then Jesus, the Son of God, comes along, and he shows us what true glory is, and it's not what anyone is thinking. On that last night, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was lying close to the breast of Jesus. So Simon Peter beckoned to him and said, Tell us who it is of whom you speak. So lying thus, close to the breast of Jesus, he said, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It's the one to whom I shall give this morsel when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, What you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money box, Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and in him God is glorified. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. What just happened? Why is Jesus saying that now he's glorified? Remember what had happened in the past three years. Jesus had preached and thousands of people had gathered. They really liked his preaching, told them stories. He cast out demons. He healed people of every disease and infirmity. He made cripples walk. He made the blind see. He raised the dead. He walked on water. He calmed the storm. He fed 5,000. Those are all the things that we would look at those and we would say, that's glorious. That's glorious. That's amazing. That's what you get famous for. But it's now that he says he's glorified. Why? Because now Jesus has gone out to set in motion Jesus' betrayal and death. Now, what's so glorious about Jesus' death? Thousands of people were crucified by the Romans. Well, crucifixion was a gruesome and painful way to die. But the physical pain Jesus went through of being crucified was a small part of the pain that he suffered. Because the sins of the world were supernaturally placed upon him, and then he experienced the punishment they deserved. Infinite punishment. We can't comprehend the amount of pain. So I think we can make a good biblical case to say that the suffering Jesus experienced for us will forever give him more glory than anything else. More than calming the storm, more than raising the dead, more than creating other things, more than the resurrection. For those of us who were here a couple of years ago when we went through the book of Revelation, what was the name that kept coming up for Jesus that the inhabitants of heaven would call him? A lamb and a lamb who was slain. 
Christian girls who are Christian boys, and many pastors have trouble with this one, but we don't. And when I was growing up, I daydreamed of touchdowns and football glory, and then after I became a follower of Jesus, I daydreamed about being, you know, used to, to heal lots of people or, you know, preaching to 10,000 people, and everybody turns their life over to Jesus. Is that true glory? Is that the best glory? You know, certainly it was glorious for Jesus to heal people, to preach, to walk on water, to raise the dead. But his greatest glory is the suffering he endured for us on the cross. Now, the Apostle Paul would later write, Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, that is, the church. That doesn't mean Jesus didn't completely pay for our sins. It means that somebody had to take the message about Jesus that everybody can be pardoned and had to take that to the world, and people being what they are and the devil being what he is, that person was going to suffer. And the Apostle Paul did that. And he did it over and over and over again, knowing that where he went, he would almost always suffer. cast out demons, raise the dead. But his greatest glory was when he suffered so that others might receive God's forgiveness and join his family. Francis of Assisi and many in the early church, much before him, were so convinced that the suffering for others was important. Francis was so convinced that he actually walked across Eastern Europe to the Muslim world where he could tell them about Jesus and they would kill him. Only they liked him when he came back. It is not great accomplishments in sports or a career that are our greatest glory. It's not even healing people and teaching demons. When we suffer for the church or so that others will fall in love with Jesus, that's our greatest glory. Unlike serving other people, which has this wonderful feedback mechanism where you feel good and fulfilled because you serve somebody else, usually true glory like this doesn't work that way. We don't usually say, wow, that suffering felt great. I think I should do that more often. But if we can become a group of people that instead of getting bitter when we suffer for other or for people who don't know Jesus yet and haven't become a follower of Jesus, instead we can embrace it and we can recognize it as the honor and privilege that it is, one in which we're following in the footsteps of Jesus and Paul and Peter and the other apostles, then it, it, it lifts the burden a bit of the suffering. And the Holy Spirit will use it even more powerfully to make things better. Blessed are you, Jesus said, when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so men persecuted the prophets.